Well, good morning. It is so good to see you. Thank you for choosing to be here on this post-Thanksgiving weekend. Of course, there's no way you're going to be standing or walking after all that you've been eating, right? But it is great to have you here, whether you're a guest or regular attender, because we are, we are starting a brand new series. So you picked a great time, and it's called Expect the Unexpected. And it's actually, um, it's actually come from some recent thoughts that I've had about the Christmas story that, surprisingly enough, are unique and new, at least to me, as I've been contemplating what happened when Jesus first came into this world. And so I'm thrilled that you're here to be a part of this conversation. And if you're a guest, it is not so much me speaking at you or to you. It's speaking with you. It's a conversation about God's truth and how it's impacting me and how it can be impacting you as well. And I have to tell you, I've been thinking a lot about the idea that life is made up of assumptions, I mean, it's impossible. As much as you would like to live based upon all fact, that's just not life. We we have to live based upon assumptions and presuppositions about life. And, And if we're going to make good assumptions, it has to be based upon reliable patterns, trustworthy patterns. And unfortunately, many times we make our choices based upon bad assumptions, on unreliable patterns and unreliable experiences. But either way, we're making assumptions. Good assumptions are assumptions like the sun will come up tomorrow. I mean, I, I know it's trivial, but it's true. It's, a, it's, it's not an absolute declared fact that the sun will come up tomorrow. I mean, something could happen in the universe to change that, but it is a reliable pattern, right? The sun will come up tomorrow. It's been happening since the day God spoke this universe into existence. And more than likely, we can assume correctly that it'll happen tomorrow. The sun will come up tomorrow. Now, there are also bad assumptions that sound just like that. They sound just as good. They are extremely optimistic. But they're just not good assumptions. They're bad assumptions. They're based upon unreliable experiences that have, in unique circumstances, occurred. But they're not normal. They're not that which happens frequently. For example, um, tomorrow will be a better day. I mean, have you ever had someone come up to you, don't worry, tomorrow will be a better day. I always go, how do you know? You tell me the sun will come up tomorrow, I go, yeah, I know, but that doesn't mean today, tomorrow's going to be any better than today. That's a bad assumption. Now, sometimes, without us doing anything, tomorrow's better than the day. You know? But more often than not, that's not true. It's not reliable. If tomorrow's going to be better than the day, I have to get up and do something different in order to make tomorrow a better day. Because if I always do what I've always done, I'm going to always get what I always... Right. And yet, doesn't it sound optimistic? Doesn't it sound beautiful? Tomorrow will be a better day. Oh, that's so great. Thank you very much for sharing that crap with me. It's not even true. It's a cliche that doesn't work. And yet it sounds just like the sun will come up tomorrow. And this is the important thing we've got to realize. Assumptions are powerful things. Assumptions determine, and most of us don't think about this, assumptions determine what we believe and what we value in life. 
Assumptions determine what we see, the lens we see circumstances through and life through and others through and relationships through. Our assumptions cause us to see it a certain way. Our assumptions determine what we ultimately choose and what we ultimately do. And assumptions ultimately determine who we become. These are powerful things because when we embrace the wrong assumptions... Assumptions based upon unreliable patterns and unreliable experiences, it's a dangerous deal. It's downright destructive because wrong assumptions can mess up our lives. Wrong assumptions rob us of opportunities, rob us of potential, and rob us of life and love itself. And I thought I would just, I mean, we can all share in everyday experiences about this, but I thought I'd get just really personal for a minute and talk about my dad. My, my dad, who died in the year 2000 um, of pancreatic cancer, um, was a great guy, great father, terrific deal. But the truth is, by the time I came along, I'm from a family of four boys, and I'm number three, right? And by the time I came along, my dad was an extremely busy guy. He came from an impoverished family, which gave him a lot of drive to live life differently. He came from a very uneducated family, and it gave him a drive to do differently. And so he, he put himself through college, and he put himself through law school, and he started his own law firm, and he pursued all kinds of different business patterns. And by the time I came along, he was a young married guy, three boys, brand new law firm, brand new career, trying to build that thing up. And he also had huge responsibilities in his birth family because his poor parents... Um, were so dysfunctional and his family was so dysfunctional as the oldest son he felt the need to really invest in them and he did all kinds of things with them and so when the reality came to his relationship with me um, I didn't get to experience him relationally all that much I got to experience him as a presence in the home at night and out early in the morning but I didn't get to experience him relationally all that much and so I kind of built some assumptions off of my experience with my dad and my assumption was that he wasn't all that relational of a guy. I mean, if he was a relational guy, then we would be experiencing relational things together, right? And that was my assumption. I just assumed this is my experience, so he must not be a relational guy. He must not care about the relational aspect. Good, good father, providing for the family, didn't split on his promises, but relationally, mm, he must not care so much about that. So my assumptions led me to not care about connecting with him relationally either. So I didn't seek relational connection with him. I sought it with my peers and friends outside. You've, you've heard it sung about cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, right? It's the whole deal. That's, that was the story of me and my dad. But as it turned out, my assumption was absolutely wrong. It was true that I wasn't experiencing relational connection with my dad. It wasn't true that he wasn't a relational guy or he didn't care about relationships. It wasn't true at all wasn't true that he didn't want a relationship with me. It's just that life and how it had dealt with him didn't provide the opportunity for him to kick through it and build that kind of relationship in the early days of my life. And so this is how I functioned with him. But I'll never forget when he started getting older and I started getting older. Uh, he came to me one time and pulled me aside and he says, you're not going to... He says, you're probably not going to believe this, but you need to know that I am experiencing a lot of hurt from the fact that you don't call me more. I'm just going to tell you, man, I was like, whoa, <laughs> that was unexpected. 
that was like a relational comment, and I hadn't experienced many of those relational comments. I could hurt you? I didn't even think you cared about this? Are you kidding me? I'm hurting you because of that? And it was unexpected. It blew my mind. But as it turns out, it showed me that my assumptions about my dad were wrong. And yet my assumptions determined what I believed about my dad, what I chose to do with my dad and not to do. And it ultimately, these assumptions robbed me of the opportunity and potential I had to know my dad more intimately and personally in the early days of my life. Now, the good news is before he died, long before he died, we started connecting relationally in a real powerful way. It was, it's a good story. But, but I missed so much because I had wrong assumptions that drove my choices. And I'm telling you, the same goes on in your life and in your heart. You've got the same kind of stories because all of us have and make assumptions. The truth is, we do the same thing with each other. We, we make assumptions about each other based upon what we see and what we've experienced with one another, but we're only seeing the outside reality. We're not seeing the inside realities, just like I did with my dad. And, and what happens is, based upon our assumptions... We totally misjudge each other and often mistreat each other. And for sure, we severely limit the potential we have for experiencing a different kind of life with one another. Assumptions are really important things. In fact, there's a story in the Bible. Some of you might not be real familiar with the Bible. I'm so glad that you're here and exposing yourself to it. But there's, there's in the Old Testament, the first portions of the Bible, a guy named King David. We know him as King David today, but he didn't start out as a king. The truth is, he was like the youngest brother in a family of menly men, and, and they were all out doing stuff like going to war, and he was cursed to live in his little hometown village and be a sheep herder, right? And so he was watching the sheep while other people were doing big things, but though it seemed small, God had big plans for him, and God decided he should be king of the people of Israel. And so God sent Samuel who was the prophet to anoint the new king, but didn't give him the name or anything, just gave him the family. So he went to David's family, and man, all of David's older brothers, they looked like king material, right? Good-looking, big dudes who could lead an army. And so Samuel said, is this the one? God said, no. Is this the one? God said, no. Is this the one? God says, no. He says, the one that I've chosen isn't here right now. And look at how it's said in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. That was speaking of David's brothers. Because the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at and forms his assumptions based upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at and forms his assumptions based upon the heart. Because of wrong assumptions, everyone underestimated David. Everyone did. The prophet Samuel, David's brothers, King Saul, and I don't know if you've ever heard the story of David and Goliath, but Goliath certainly underestimated David. I mean, when David came out to fight Goliath, he's this little kid with no armor, he's got a little slingshot from Kmart, right? And uh, a couple of stones. And Goliath's like this 20-foot-high guy. He's really only 9 feet, but I mean, he's got this sword, he's got this... Thing. He dropped all that stuff. He goes, what am I, like a dog that you're sending out this little kid that belongs in Head Start to fight me? And then David killed him, and Goliath changed his mind a little bit too late, just as his head was being cut off, you know? See, there's something for everyone here. There's gore, there's violence, there's <laughs> kindness, there's encouragement. There's something for everybody. But the bottom line is, everyone underestimated David. They expected small things of David. They assumed, based upon what they saw and what they'd experienced as he was the youngest son, they expected small things of David, but, but not God. 
God expected big things from David. And God was right. God looked past the surface that everyone else formed their assumptions on and God looked to the heart of David. And David lived up to God's expectations. But here's, here's the beauty of this story because we live in a world much like David lived in where people underestimate us, right? Where, where they expect small things from us instead of big things. Where they tell us, you'll never amount to anything in this world, really. God could never use someone like you. I know I've heard these things time and time again. It's the kind of world David lived in, but the thing I love about David is that he didn't allow his experiences with other people's small assumptions and small expectations to dummy him down. He, he, he didn't allow other people's low expectations to keep him from experiencing God and God's best in his life. And here's why. He believed what God said about him rather than what others said about him. This is a life-changing reality. In Psalm 139, 14, after everyone saying, you're a nobody, you're a nobody, you're a nobody, David wrote, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well. He believed what God said about him. And this is how he lived such an unexpected life. And I just have to tell you, sadly, many of us fail here. We really do because we live in this world where we're constantly beat down or constantly dismissed or people have such low expectations of us and low opinions of us that, that we allow those wrong and small expectations to determine what we believe about ourselves and what we see in ourselves and the choices we make for ourselves and we live so far below our potential. We live down to the small expectations that others put on us instead of living up to the great expectation that God puts on us. We limit God in our lives because we make the wrong assumptions about God and what he wants to be in our lives. And here's why we make wrong assumptions about God. It's because we kind of put him in the category of all of our other experiences. Because other people disappoint us, God's going to disappoint us. Because other people declared love but didn't really mean it, this must be God. And, and we literally wrongly assume that God is like so many others in our lives. Oh, he says he needs us, but he doesn't need us. He says he wants us, but he doesn't want us. He says he'd love to spend time with us, but he's too busy for us. We're not important enough for him to make a priority. We're not important enough for him to be concerned about us. He's, he's, he's not all that relational. I mean, come on, he seems far away, right? He can't be all that relational. Just demanding, just demanding. And we make all of these wrong assumptions based upon our experiences with other people. And when we expect him to be like everyone else. We expect the wrong thing. What we need to do when it comes to God is we need to expect the unexpected because that's what he is. He's nothing like what we've experienced with one another in this world. The reality is about God is that unlike others who say they love us but don't live up to it, he loves us and loves us unconditionally and he's never compromised that one time. Unlike others in this world who, who say they want to do life with us, in fact, whether we're sick or poor, you know, or rich or healthy, didn't matter. They want to do life with us. But when it turned out that it was the dark side of those things, they split. Unlike that, God wants to do life with us, and when he says it, he means it. And, and the truth is, we desperately need to do life with him. And the reason we're living so far below our potential is because we're not doing life with him. If we're going to truly and fully experience him in our lives, we need to change our assumptions about God. We need to learn to expect the unexpected. And this is where we get to the Christmas story behind this whole series because the Christmas story is a great example of this truth. When it comes to God, 
We need to change our very human, very normal, very typical, but very limited assumptions about God that expect so little of him instead of expecting the unexpected. So in this series, the title explains the truth that I really hope that will weave into the fabric of our lives and our choices. It's certainly the truth behind this weekend's talk. When it comes to God, we need to learn to expect the unexpected instead of expecting the typical. And let's just start at the beginning. Look at Luke chapter 2. This is a part of the Christmas story, starting with verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus, this was the emperor that ruled the world, the Roman Empire. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census, a counting of the people, should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to his own town to register. They would have to go to their ancestral town, the town of their, their birth lineage, and register for the census. So Joseph, who was pledged to be married to Mary and was going to be the stepfather of the the son of God, Jesus, virgin-born Jesus, Joseph also went up to the town from the town of Nazareth, a very small town in Galilee in Israel, to Judea to a very small two-bit town called Bethlehem. It was the town of David. Now, the town of David, he was a sheep herder. This was a place where a couple of sheep were. It wasn't where palaces were. It was where sheep were. And that's where David came from. And Joseph went there because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. The virgin conceived the Son of God. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, right there in Bethlehem. Now, for years, this was just background information for me. You know, I read verses 1 through 7, I said, okay, great, but let's get to the cool stuff. Right, Because the cool stuff is, then the angels showed up and they were singing and flying in the sky and the shepherds were freaking out, right? And they were saying, peace on earth, goodwill to man, this is cool stuff. And then they go and there's this baby in a manger with swaddling clothes. It sounds so cool. It was just a bunch of rags, you know, and it was a feeding trough for now. It sounded cool, but I was, let's get to the cool stuff. And then Jesus grows up and he starts healing people. Awesome. But the problem is, in making this background material, I missed the whole point. He, he was born in Bethlehem. Now, from a human perspective, this was very unexpected because this baby was declared by God and the angels to be the king of the universe, Messiah, the Savior, the Lord of the world. And so it's unexpected that he would be born in Bethlehem from a human perspective. In fact, based upon our normal assumptions, it's downright bizarre because from our natural view, if you're going to introduce a new king to the world, you wouldn't want to introduce him from a small, unknown, isolated, powerless, irrelevant, and insignificant town. Come on, I mean, you got too much work to do. They don't have any reporters in this town. No one cares about this town. How are you going to introduce a new king from this town? He has no social status, no influence, nothing. That's not how it works. You'd choose for this king you wanted to introduce to be born in Rome, the center for the power of the world of that day. Right? Am I talking right? You want him to be born in a high society place, not a know-nothing place. Look at the picture of the Roman Empire in Jesus' day. It's, it's in dark green. and, and This is funny. Rome's right in the center, controlling this universe of power of that day. I mean, in Rome was the city of opulence, marble imported from all over the world, buildings that are impressive. I mean, just craziness. And then over to the far right of the outlying areas of the Roman Empire is that little red Israel about the size of New Jersey. And Bethlehem's in that. 
But the weird thing about that is, as irrelevant as that little place is in the Roman Empire, Bethlehem is irrelevant in that area. I mean, there were cool cities like Jerusalem, right? But no, Bethlehem. It was ridiculous that the Savior of the world would be born in Bethlehem. But God chose it. Clearly, it wasn't an accident. It didn't happen just because she gave birth by accident there. God moved the emperor of the Roman Empire to call for a census to move Joseph of Mary into Bethlehem to have the baby Jesus born there for a reason. He promised it hundreds of years before. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I mean, you have a problem believing in the veracity of the Bible? Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God said that's where he's going to be born. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you're small among the clans of Judah, you're a nothing. Out of you will come for me everything. One who will be the ruler over my kingdom, over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. That means who pre-exists their birth. Talking about Jesus, the Son of God. And I'm telling you, from this reality that God chose to have his son born in Bethlehem and promised it hundreds of years before, I get some lessons about how I should look at God and experience God and life more fully. I get lessons from Bethlehem about expecting the unexpected from God. So let me just share a couple of these. The first is this. In a world where we've come to expect broken promises, right? God keeps his promises. That's the first lesson I experience from Bethlehem in the story of Christmas. I mean, we've all had people make promises to us. Some of us very intimate and important promises like I'll be faithful to you to the end of our lives, right? And many of you know what it's like to have that person go, <laughs> just kidding, you know, I didn't mean it. We've all had broken promises, some of us from employers, some of us from employees, some of us from friends, some of us from parents, some of us from kids, some of us from pastors and spiritual leaders that we trusted. We've all had broken promises. It's what this world's made up of. It's littered with broken promises. But in a world of broken promises, God keeps his. I think about it. God makes some crazy and unbelievable promises. I mean crazy, unbelievable promises. And yet even when he makes a crazy, unbelievable promise, he keeps that. It was nuts that the king of the universe would be born in Bethlehem. But when God promised it, he delivered it. God keeps his promises. With God, we have to expect the unexpected because in this world, we expect them to be broken, but with God, we can expect them to be fulfilled. And when we understand this reality about God, our lives will be forever changed. He keeps his promises. And you know what the problem with our lives are? We've dummied down our lives to be lived without promises believed instead of embracing the promises that God's given. And and this has so transformed me as I've started thinking about this reality. I thought I'd just share a couple of promises that really deeply move me and share them with you. But it applies to all of God's promises. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Pretty simple sentence, simple words, but it's a huge promise. And surely I am with you always, always to the very end of time. The reason that's important to me and so deeply moves me is because, quite frankly, more often than not, on a daily basis, I feel very isolated and very alone. I mean, God doesn't feel close. He feels far away. Do you have this reality? 
I mean, after a good cup of coffee and on a pretty good day, I can feel like, yeah, I guess he could be around here. But on a normal basis, I'm just not feeling really good. Things feel pretty distant. I feel pretty alone. And it's like I'm having to make decisions, travel my life, do this walk alone, and it's a big walk in, a, in this big world. But God says, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. If that was someone promising that in human form, I'd go, mm. but this is God promising this to us. And God keeps his promises. I know many of you, I know I've been a pastor a very long time, and I know you're like me. Many of you feel like you're all alone. Many of you feel like God's missing the better parts of your life, and because of it, you're experiencing the worst parts of life. Many of you think that God seems to be on vacation. He's long distance, that he's never looked, that you never cared. He's, he's missing everything that's going on, but the truth is, that's how you feel, because that's how you experience life with all of us, but that's not true of him, because God's reliable pattern is this. Like the sun always comes up the next day, so God has always kept all of his promises. It's time to start claiming his promise, and his promise is this. No matter how alone you feel, you're not alone. He's there. All you have to do is claim it. Look at Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This verse right here, which is so precious, is dismissed by so many people. Because we're so used to living in a world where these optimistic, sunny, little cliches are meaningless. How many of us have had people come up and say, hey, let's do lunch. And we never do lunch. Let's get even more personal. How many of you have ever had someone tell you they were going to pray for you and you know they didn't think about you after they said it? I mean, we're used to this kind of crap, right? Oh, sure you do. Sure you care. Ooh, sunny day, you know. Tomorrow will be better. Good luck with that. You know, that, it's junk. But when God makes a promise, expect the unexpected. He keeps it. He says, we know that all things in God work for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He doesn't say all things are good. He says he can take the worst of life, the worst of circumstances, the worst of context, the worst of experiences, and he can use those to build a mosaic of our lives that is profoundly good. And we can take that to the bank because God keeps his promises. That's meaningful to me because not a lot of good happens, but a lot of bad does happen, right? Some of you are experiencing the worst of life right now, but I want you to know, even though you're experiencing the worst, God knows how to make that into a mosaic that you will look back on and say, my gosh, that's good. But you just have to trust his promises. Expect the unexpected. Look at Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. That's a great promise. But that's, an unbel- that's a crazy promise. Here's how I look at that. I've got a very big imagination and I'm not shy about asking for it. I mean, I'm serious. I think I, I, it'd scare you to death if you know some of the things that I dream about, you know? <laughs> and I literally ask God, hey, God, you could do this. Do this, man. That's awesome. So I dream big. I ask big. And you know what this verse says? I can't dream big enough or ask big enough because God can do infinite, that word immeasurably, infinitely more than I can dream or ask. That's what God can do according to his power at work in me. I, I, I'm going, 
Siri, that's the stuff of fairy tales, right? Not with God, because no matter how crazy or unbelievable when God promises something, he keeps it. He, he promised Bethlehem, and it came true. God keeps his promises. You know what's great about this? These are three promises that mean a lot to me. Probably mean a lot to you. But he's made hundreds of promises. Why don't you go home sometime this week and just Google Bible promises that God has made and just start reading through those hundreds of promises and go, he keeps each one. It's a reliable pattern. That's a big deal. Or go buy the book at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com or a Christian bookstore somewhere and it says the promises of God and they've listed all the promises of God and just realize God keeps his promises. Wow. There's another lesson from Bethlehem about how we should expect the unexpected from God and this is a big one for us as well as human beings. God chooses the small and weak things to accomplish his great and powerful work. God chooses the small and weak things to accomplish his great and powerful work. Now, now let me ask you a question. Just think about this. Based upon our assumptions as human beings, based upon our experiences as human beings, if we want to change the world, if that's what we want to do, if we want to change the world, should we choose as our starting place New York City or Pinckney, Michigan? I mean, come on, Pinckney's an okay place, right? In the middle of nowhere, but it's an okay place. Great people, glad some of you from Ping actually come into Northridge, wherever you worship, some up in the Brighton Hall campus, some in Annemarie and some here. Glad you're here. You're important, you're valuable. But if I'm going to change the world, I'm not putting my headquarters in Pingney. I'm going to New York City. That's just my assumption, right? And you agree with that. How many of you think if you want to rule the world, you should start in Washington, D.C. instead of Chelsea, Michigan? If you want to rule the cow industry, Chelsea might be a good choice. Okay, that's not fair. But that great restaurant, Chelsea. Don't want to lose all you from Chelsea, but here's the thing. I'm not coming there if I want to rule the world. D.C. is the place. But with God, we're supposed to expect the unexpected. He chose Bethlehem over Rome. We have to change our assumptions. He chose Pinckney, not New York City. So some of you are brilliant. I'm the stupid one. He chose Chelsea over D.C. He chose Bethlehem over Rome. We have to change our assumptions. God isn't just focused on the big stuff, the stuff that seems significant to us. And this is a good thing because all of us in this world feel small. I mean, we're one of seven billion people, right? I mean, who are we? One of seven billion. Are you kidding me? When we realistically look at our lives, we realize how small we are. And then we kind of let that play out in all of our lives. Whatever you do as a living, most of us have these jobs where we go, you know, this is meaningless in the bigger picture of things. I know it provides a little bit of money for my family and for me, but it's like, it's a meaningless thing. It's so small. Many of us every day get up and go to work feeling so small like other people are doing big things and we're doing small things and it starts to get discouraging and some of you, I've never had this experience, but some of you are stay-at-home parents. And my wife for a while was a stay-at-home parent. My daughter's a stay-at-home parent and I'm going to tell you, it's easy to start feeling like other people are getting to be a part of the big stuff and you're changing diapers and doing the small stuff. It's so easy because we live in a world that values and assumes that big stuff is big stuff. But it's not true. 
If that was true, God would have chose Rome, but he didn't choose Rome. He chose Bethlehem. And let me just tell you something about God. With God, we often see as big the wrong things. In fact, let this just weave its way into impacting your heart just a little bit. What we see as big and valuable and important and significant, God often sees as small. And what we see as small, God often sees as big and valuable and significant. God isn't impressed with what looks big. He's impressed with our hearts. Look at how the Bible says it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Brothers, he's talking about those of us who have, by faith, put our, ourselves in the hands of Jesus, you know? Let him transform us. He's brothers, children of God. Think of what you were when you were called. You know, we weren't born as children of God, created by God, but not born as children of God. We all walked away from that. We've sinned against him, and, and so we were far away from him. He says, when you were called to be children of God, think about what you were. And look what he says. Not many of you were wise by human standards. It's not like most of you are Einsteins. Not many were influential. It's not like you had power and influence in this big world. Not many of you were of noble birth. And yet God chose you. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, and the things that are not, aren't even considered anything like Bethlehem, to nullify the things that are, the things like Rome, so that no one may boast before him. God values the small stuff. Bethlehem. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is God speaking to the apostle Paul. Paul was trying to get some suffering that was really diminishing him out of his life, and he prayed for God to take away. God says, no, no, my grace is sufficient, because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, this is how I'm going to change. My assumptions have changed. So I'm now going to boast about that which I used to complain about. I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's strength and power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I now delight in what I used to hate, weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties because I've learned when I am weak, then I am strong. See, we have this assumption, when I'm strong, I'm strong. When I'm weak, I'm weak. We're wrong! When people consider me big stuff, I'm big stuff. When they consider me small stuff, I'm small stuff. Wrong! You have to, with God, expect the unexpected. God chooses small and weak things to accomplish his powerful and his great work. Let me get more personal. God chooses us. Us! Let me get more personal. God chooses you. You know what the problem is? Because of our assumptions, we don't choose him. How sad. We let our assumptions form our beliefs and form our values and form how we see God and see ourselves and form our choices and form what we do and ultimately form what we become. And we're becoming people living so far below our potential because we've assumed God right out of the picture. It's ridiculous. As I look at the story of Christmas and the reality of Bethlehem instead of Rome, it brings me to one more thought. And... It's going to sound funny when I say it, but the, the lesson from Bethlehem to expect the unexpected when it comes to God is this. God is the X factor. I know it sounds weird because it sounds like I'm saying God is a television show. No, he's not. I'm going to talk about X factor, the television show. X factor stands for the variable 
The X factor is the variable in any given situation which ultimately makes the greatest impact on the ultimate outcome. So it's like, what's the one thing that made this outcome real? That's the X factor. And God is the variable in every circumstance. Every circumstance of life. Rome was greater than Bethlehem, hands down. There's no debating this. I've had the privilege of standing in both places. And I'm going to tell you, Rome is fascinating. After all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, a couple of millennia, the Colosseum stands in awesome beauty. It's crazy. The marble that was imported from all around the world to form the basic structures in Rome, many of them still there and dug up. It's just, it's unbelievable. I stood in Bethlehem and do you know what remains from the time of Jesus? Nothing. I mean, there might have been some cow dung under the dirt that I didn't recognize, but I mean, that's about it. They've built the Church of the Nativity there because they kind of tried to figure out where he might have been born, you know, where the stable was and stuff. And they, 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 they went there when Jesus was there. That's there only because Jesus was born there. So Rome, great. Bethlehem, nothing. Hands down, Rome was greater until Jesus was born. Now listen, once God chose Bethlehem, Rome didn't have a chance. And Bethlehem won. Here's what we need to get into our heads. Here's what we need to get into our hearts. It's not our size. It's not our strength. It's not how smart we are. It's not our perceived significance that matters. It's our relationship with God that matters. It's not how good we are that matters. It's how great God is that matters. He's the X factor. Bethlehem became great because God chose Bethlehem. Look at Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now see, some make the assumption that if I've got the strongest horses and I've got the strongest chariots and I've got the strongest army, I win. <laughs> Wrong. Time and time again, God has proven it's a reliable pattern that one plus God wins every time. So trust in the right one. But we trust in the wrong thing. We make the wrong assumptions. Look at Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power. Just stop there. What? Yes, it is by might. And yes, it is by power. Don't we say the rich get richer and the powerful get more powerful? The poor get poorer and the weak get weaker? Isn't that what we say? Come on, it is. It's our human assumption. It's just flat out wrong because it's not by might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Bethlehem was nothing until Jesus entered it, and then it became everything. And the same is true for us. Here's the truth. No matter how great or small we are in this world, our lives are ultimately going to amount to nothing until Jesus enters them. He's the X factor. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You see, Jesus showed up in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem went from nothing to everything. Bethlehem went from meaningless to meaningful. Bethlehem went from loser to winner when Jesus was born there. And the same is true of us. Every single one of us was created to experience 
all that God has promised, and so few of us are experiencing it because so few of us have let Jesus be born in us. Jesus said it to a religious Pharisee who was really religious like many of us but didn't know God. And Jesus says, you'll never really experience the kingdom of God, you know, until you're born anew, born from above, born again, until Jesus is born in you. Because when Jesus is born in you, you become brand new. Has Jesus ever been born in you? Are you in Christ, a new creation, old things gone, new things come, or are you still being defined by the old? If I've got you pegged, and I think I do because you're like me, we're still more defined by the old than we are by the new. We need Jesus to be born in us. And so I want to encourage you, whatever your background, whatever your failures, whatever your experience, let him in. So you, like Bethlehem, can become everything God intends for you. So just before I give you the last couple of verses and we run out of here, I'm going to ask if you'd just bow with me in a word of prayer, just for a moment, if you would. And I want you to contemplate your own life. Is Jesus just existing on the outside or is Jesus really transforming in the inside? And in this moment, I'm going to encourage you to pray and let Jesus in. Just make my words the expression of your heart to God. Just say, God, I need you to make me new. I need you to change my life. I don't deserve it. I've sinned against you. I'm guilty. I've left you out. But Jesus, you died on the cross in penalty for my sin. And you rose again to give me new life. And I'm trusting in you right now. Give birth to this new life in me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you just prayed with me, I, I'm going to ask you to do something not in a way to diminish you, but in a way to maximize you. I, I'd love it if you'd share with me that you took that step, that you, that you opened your life to Christ. We make it really easy for you. We give you a program in our live worship services if you're a part of it live. And, and all you have to do is tear out the connection card, fill it out, and check off the bottom that says, today I pray to receive Christ in my life. And if you did, please let us know. Not only will we celebrate it, but we have a letter that we've done that can help you take next steps in your spiritual life that we'd love to get to you, but we need to know you prayed with me. There are boxes at every exit as you leave our campuses and throw it in there and we'll send you that. And if you're watching On Demand, Northridge On Demand online, Just hit the what next button. We'll do the same for you. But this doesn't stop when we open our life to Jesus, when we we first get born from above. Because the same is true for believers. Do you realize our lives will continue to fall short unless every single day we're letting Jesus live in us? I think many of us feel like we're Bethlehem before Jesus was born there instead of Bethlehem after in the way we live. And it's because every day we're not letting him empower our lives. Look at John 15, 5. Jesus explains why. I'm the vine, the source of life. You're the branches. If a man remains in me like a branch does in a vine, and I in him, that person will produce much fruit. I mean, be very productive. Live life to the full. But apart from me, if you don't stay connected to me, you can do nothing. The truth is, Bethlehem would have never become great unless Jesus was in it. And the truth is, many of us are never experiencing God's best because we're not letting Jesus live in us. The problem is, We're trying to live for Jesus instead of letting Jesus live in us. And when you try to live for Jesus, what you're trying to do is you're trying to build Rome for Jesus 
and then ask God to bless you instead of saying, God, I'm just Bethlehem. I need you to live in me and you make me something I'm not on my own. Depend on him. Abide in him. Remain in him. Trust in him that he'll do the unexpected. And then here's what I want to leave you with. As Jesus transformed Bethlehem by being born there, so he forever changes us when we, by faith, are born again, when he's born in our lives. Look at how 1 John 5 says it, because I believe on a daily basis, many of us feel overcome by the world. Many of us feel like we're on the losing side. But look what he says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. They live like David, defeating Goliath instead of being defeated by Goliath. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith in what? A God who does not do the typical. A God who does not fit into our human assumptions. A God who does the unexpected. Our faith gives us victory. And who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. When it comes to God, we need to expect the unexpected. Unlike in our world, he keeps his promises. We can count on him. We can rely on him. Are you? Unlike in our world that only values big stuff and big things, Jesus chooses and uses small and weak things to accomplish his great and powerful work. And unlike in our world that thinks if we're not the best, we're nobody, the truth is even at our best, we're nobody because God is the X factor. When he is in us, as with Bethlehem, we become the winners. I don't know if you noticed, but at Christmas, we don't sing Oh, big mammoth town of Rome. Wouldn't even be a good song. It'd suck. It'd have to be a country song to work. We sing, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, because the story of Christmas is that with God, you need to expect the unexpected, and when you really do trust him in that way, your life becomes more than you could have ever imagined. If he can bring the king of kings into this world, from a stable in a two-bit town. Imagine what he can do in you when you expect the unexpected. Go out and have a great week. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.